Well, if you are new to us, you're in the room or online, my name's Chad, and we're going to begin this really short series just simply called It's Personal. And for a lot of reasons, I've been anxious to get to this conversation, and you'll understand why in just a few moments. And the idea that we're going to be talking about at first hearing could just sound so obvious and overly simple, but it's not. The idea that we're going to be talking about is that personal matters matter more. That when something is personal to us, it just matters more. And this is true in every area of life. That matters that are personal to us, they get our attention, they get our focus, our thoughts center around them, uh, it garners our affection. If something gets more personal to us, then we get more passionate about those things. It stirs our energy and often our finances, our, our money gets directed towards those things that we take personally. I would be willing to bet that none of you have ever put money into a stranger's 401k because personal, it's not personal to you. Personal matters matter more. And I was reminded of this in recent months when my oldest son decided to go to Poland and Ukraine to help. And before getting this phone call, it had never crossed my mind to do something like this until my son made this decision. And then suddenly it became personal. And then after spending time with refugees and defenders, I now feel a deeply personal connection. I don't just see news stories. I don't just hear about a crisis somewhere in the world. No, I see, see faces. I think of Natalia and her children. I think of Markian, who and I, he and I have been corresponding back and forth. I shared his video a couple weeks ago. And a few weeks ago, he was killed. And his sister's taken over the communicating with me. I don't just know about Mark's mother's grief of losing her only son. I feel it. Emotions are stirred within me when I see posts and news stories. Why? Because it's personal. Two weeks ago when we had baptisms here, we heard a bit of each person's story as to why they were going public with their faith in baptism and and hearing their stories and seeing the embrace of their family and friends of their dripping wet loved ones afterwards. It just, it stirred emotion and, and, and joy. Why? Because when we get the why behind the what, especially for those of us that are deeply invested into the vision and the mission of this New Life community, it is deeply personal, and personal matters matter more. Neuroscientists in the middle of the 1900s, they discovered something called the Reticular Activating System, or RAS for short. Uh, But essentially, it's the part of our brain that filters thousands upon thousands of bits of information that we get every hour. And it decides what we need to pay attention to and what we need to ignore. Because if our brains had to absorb and digest everything that we saw, all the data coming in uh, visually through our ears, uh, it would, it, we would wear out. We just couldn't survive if we had to do that. So the RAS constantly filters out those things by asking this question. Does this matter to me? Does it matter to me? So here's an example. You go to the car dealership, you're looking around the lot, and you see... And you think to yourself, that is the most beautiful black pickup truck I have ever seen in my life. I've never seen one of it. And you shell out the money and you buy this unique black pickup truck. You drive off the lot and what do you see about a hundred of over the next week? A hundred black pickup trucks. In fact, some of them, they're like identical to yours. And you're like, did everyone go out this last weekend and buy a truck just like mine? No. Why are you suddenly seeing black trucks everywhere? Because now... It's personal to you. It's just personal. 
And that's what the, reticul uh, the, uh, the reticular activating system does. It asks the question, does it matter to me? And so if, we, if, it, if so, we become engaged. If not, we check out. It's the part of the brain uh, that controls the function between consciousness and sleep. So when the RAS kicks in and it's filtering something out, we literally go to sleep to that thing. This is why when you're standing there and someone's been talking to you for about three or four minutes and the whole time you're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. After a few minutes you realize, I, I haven't heard a single word that they said to me. Like husbands, let's just be honest. Okay, you've done this, all right? Your wife, your child, they're giving you like the full play-by-play play of something. And after a bit, you're like, um, could you repeat that? Like, I, I, I didn't hear a thing that you said. And that never ends well, by the way. Uh, but now I've given you an out. Okay, this may be the best reason that you are listening to me today. Because now I've given you the smart scientific term so that you can say, I'm sorry, honey. My reticular activating system involuntarily kicked in, so science, not my fault. Uh, personal matters matter more. And you know who gets this concept and is leveraging this uh, to make billions and billions of dollars? It's the fine folks at Amazon, Google, and Meta. I mean, they're just not throwing out products, hopefully, you know, randomly, hopefully these products that we're putting in front of people will mean something to them and catch their eye. No. They have a very specific direct marketing strategy utilizing complex, complex, uh, complex algorithms and AI to make things as personal as possible to every single one of us individually. Netflix, same thing. I mean, they're not just throwing out random movies and shows uh, hoping to get, you know, get your attention when you're logged on. They have very, very intelligent algorithms that say, based on the patterns and habits of this individual, what would personally matter to the person, on the, the human on the other side of the screen? And in fact, you know, you know that y'all's Alexas and series are listening to you, right? You know, it's like the family, they're having conversation. I laughed, she laughed, Alexa laughed. Uh, you know, or uh, you, you know, you're talking with somebody in your home where there's an Alexa and then you pull up your phone or your laptop, you open up social media or Google, and what's there? An advertisement for the very thing that you were just talking about just a few minutes before. She's listening. Always listening. And my wife, in fact, she can confirm this. Literally two days ago, we were having a conversation in, in our house, in our kitchen, about cabinet handles with somebody that's actually here. And a few minutes later, I opened Facebook. And guess what ad popped up? An ad for kitchen hardware, for cabinet hardware. Is that unsettling? Yes, yes, it's very unsettling. In fact, last year there was an article in Forbes entitled, Priority Personalize or Perish? And in the article it said, the pandemic forced brands to ditch nearly everything for digital platforms. Personalization became an even more dominant force. In fact, data shows that personalization has never been more necessary for brands looking to last the year, let alone the next decade. And the point of the article is summarized with this. If you don't personalize, you will not survive. The author knew what's at stake. It's got to be personal or it will perish. And the reason that we're talking about this idea is because I'm convinced that the same thing is true with our faith. It's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it's this. If we don't personalize our faith, if you don't personalize your faith, if I don't, it will perish. It's just a matter of time. As I've talked with 
as I've listened to people tell their stories about how honestly, you know, they can kind of take or leave church community. Things are just basically fine, and God, like, I, I believe He's there, but I don't really feel that it's that relevant or He's that relevant to my day-to-day mundane life. And the songs, like, they're okay and all, but I don't really have an emotional connection. I've talked to people about when they've walked away from church or when faith didn't really make that big of an impact in their life. You know, there can be a number of different reasons for those things, but the one thing in common as I talk to people is I'm seeing that what typically when people are bored or indifferent or they walk away, it comes down to a lack of personal experience when it comes to their faith. And, and if you're not a Christian here today, maybe the reason you walked away for church for a while at some point, maybe you were raised in church, you had parents or grandparents, they took you, and so you were, you were there, you believed the best that you could, and you participated as much as you knew how, but for some reason, it either never became personal or at some point it stopped being personal to you. And now as an adult, you can hear something like the common arguments for intelligent design. You hear that we're in the Goldilocks zone, that if we were a little further away, we would freeze to death as a planet. If we were a little bit closer, we would burn up. Life wouldn't be able to exist. And the fact that as we listen in this room or online that right now that uh, the earth is going 1,000 miles an hour around the, the axis of the earth, and yet none of us are being thrown off the planet. The scale said the same thing this morning. Uh, and, you know, we're traveling 67,000 miles an hour around the sun, and yet there's only a breeze outside. We hear all the arguments for intelligent design and the complexity of our bodies and the amazing thing that the human body is and how it all points to intelligent design. And you know what? That's great. But honestly, like, so what? Like, why, why do I care? Because it's not personal. I think most of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, would go, yeah, I, you know, I, I believe that God created the world. I'm just wrestling with whether or not He cares about my world. Is He paying attention to what's going on in my day-to-day world? How, how is He relevant to my world tomorrow come Monday morning? I mean, yeah, I, I even believe that Jesus walked the face of the planet, that He was a real person. I even believe the accounts of in the New Testament of his life are true, that he healed people, that he raised people from the dead and did some incredible things, yay, for them. But that was 2,000 years ago. Does Jesus care and know about me today? Does he care about the conversation I need to have with my child or my adult son or daughter where we're trying to figure something out that's hard? Does he know and care about what's going on with my job or with our finances? Does he know and care about how helpless I feel in this relationship with my, my, my parents or my child or my spouse, this family member? Is it personal? Does he know? Does he care about the secret battle that I've been facing for so long? I don't know if I will ever break free from it. Because if it's not personal to him, then how does this matter? Because if it's not personal, then our faith begins to fizzle. And I'm convinced that we miss out on what God has for us to experience. And the reason that we're talking about this, and the reason that I have been anxious to talk about this, is because I'm convinced, again, that if you and I don't take the time to figure out how to personalize our faith, it is going to perish. It's just a matter of time. And it's not just you at stake. It's the next generation that's at stake. 
It's all those small humans gathered into the rooms, into this building. It's your grandchildren, your children, those of you with nieces and nephews. So this matters. Now the good news is Jesus, he came to be a person, a person on this earth to interact with people, with regular people like you and like me. And when he interacted with people, he got very personal with them. Yes, he talked about the universal love of God for the world, for God so loved the world, but he interacted with people. He spent time eating and drinking with them. He spent time with them, healing them and conversing with them in some very personal ways. And then he described the relationship that people could have with him as we follow him, as we put our faith and our trust in him, not just the people 2,000 years ago, but today for you. And when Jesus described that relationship, he described something that was very personal. There's an instance when the Apostle Paul in John chapter 9, he tells us about the time where Jesus, he, he crosses paths with this young blind man, and he gives this man his sight back, which is incredible. But the problem was, is he did it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they were very upset about this. Because they could not understand how Jesus, who was supposed to be good, could do that. Which in their minds made him evil. So they launch an investigation. They go to meet with eyewitnesses, or to meet with how this young man was healed. They meet with his parents and they ask him questions. They end up con- uh, bringing the young man. They ask him. They end up confronting Jesus himself about this. And Jesus does not let them off lightly. He spars with them a bit. He ends up calling them the blind ones. And the Pharisees are like, say that to my face. How dare you? And in the middle of this argument, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. To which the Pharisees were like, like we are in this moment. Like, what? What? Like, like we were just talking about Jesus, you know, you healing a blind man and doing this bad thing. It was horrible because you did it on the Sabbath. Why are we now talking about sheep and thieves and robbers? But Jesus has transitioned into an illustration about blindness and about how they're missing the point. And then he begins to describe what a relationship with him is about. He says, Very tr- truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. So the translation is, for the, some of us who have a little questionable uh, past, uh, you were climbing back into your bedroom window in the middle of the night so your parents didn't catch you, okay, up to no good. All right, or the individuals that right before Christmas last year decided to use not a key fob but like a tire iron or something to shatter my wife's driver's side window in broad daylight to access the interior to borrow some of the contents uh, up to no good. Okay, that's just Jesus' point, all right? He's talking about sheep shepherd, using sheep shepherd language because the people of his time would have fully understand, understood. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him And the sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. See, there was a personal connection that a shepherd would have with their sheep. For most of us who have been around horses or other livestock on farms or a ranch, we've seen this. I mean, most times, if the animal doesn't know you, they will not let you near them. And they're certainly not going to come to you when you you call them. And in the case of the shepherds of Jesus' day, they knew each one by name. He continues, when he has brought out all his own, because many times different herds would get mixed together and and, and share a pen, he goes ahead of him and his sheep, his sheep, 
follow him because they know his voice. See, the rest wouldn't follow because they don't know his voice. Jesus is saying all this, but the Pharisees are still not getting it. So he decides to get really, really clear and he transitions to first person. And in doing so, he makes the relationship that you and I could and should have with him very clear. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Now, I'll be honest, like for years and years and years, like, like that th- seemed a little confusing. Like what, what is he trying to say? See, in that time and culture, when the shepherd would put the sheep up for the night in a cave or some sort of pen, they would often lay down at the opening in order to protect the sheep throughout the night. So he would literally use his body as the gate. He would use his body as the gate to make sure that they didn't wander from the safety of the cave or the pen and to make sure that no one or nothing else got in that might harm them or steal them. So that's what Jesus is describing. I, I'm the gate. I'm using my body to protect you. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. They'll find protection. They'll find provision in me. The very thing that they need to survive and thrive. The thief, however, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are struggling to reconcile this healing because it was done on the Sabbath. And they thought Jesus was evil. They couldn't reconcile this. How does this good and evil go together? So he clarifies, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is saying, listen, the thief is someone different. I, on the other hand, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Guys, I am not the thief. I am not here to do evil. I have come for reasons that are so utterly personal and good. I have come so that the people who would put their faith in me, who would follow me as their shepherd, I have come to give them life and give it to the full. And full here means not just to the top. It means to overflowing. Jesus is saying, look, look at this blind man. Look at this man that was blind, that I just healed. Can you imagine the kind of life, the kind of new life he's already now experiencing? Because of what I've done, he's seen for the very first time in his life. In the same way, in the same way, I came to bring new life to all who would follow me. And I will say this verse often gets taken out of context because they'll make it sound like Jesus shows up with some pixie dust and just throws it on whatever situation you're going through and magically makes it all better. You know, name it, claim it, theology. That is not what Jesus is talking about. When you read it in context, he is showing us the way to have abundant life in your day-to-day life that he came to bring. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And then he gives us the antithesis of the good shepherd. The hired hand, however, is not the shepherd. who doesn't, He does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand. And to give a little passive-aggressive jab to the Pharisees and he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, I love that Jesus included this in his illustration because I believe for many of us, this is the battle. Because regardless of where you are with your faith, we inevitably get ourselves into circumstances that are not going our way. And it weighs on us. And we don't know how much longer we can take it. 
And we begin to have all kinds of thoughts and conversations in our mind. And yeah, it may not be a physical wolf, but it's a wolf nonetheless. It's a relationship issue. It's a dating issue. It's a marriage or a parenting issue. It's a financial issue or health or job or family. And in those moments, we can think to ourselves, God, where are you? Have you left us on our own? Have you run away? Have you left us to our own devices? Are you with us? Are you with me in the midst of this? Jesus in this passage is reminding us, look, I am not the hired hand. I care for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yet we can all get to the point where we ask, God, do you really care about me specifically? And in that moment, it's like, I want you to remember, Jesus reminds us, he tells us, I'm not the hired hand who runs off. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So Jesus connects this relationship that he has with God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, this intimacy and closeness that Jesus experiences with God the Father. And he says, look, you can experience this very same thing with me. And we've been talking about this over the past few weeks. We've been talking about Jesus, Jesus' teaching about the vine and the branches, that He's the vine, we're the branches, and that we stay connected to Him. And in the same way that the Father knows me, and I know the Father, you can know me, and I can know you, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And in that moment, this made no sense to them. But not too long after this, Jesus would go to the cross and die for them, and die for the sins of the whole world. Little did they know that Jesus' voluntary death would punctuate the kind of shepherd that he is. And Jesus is saying, look, the relationship I have with those that follow me is personal. I didn't just come to save the whole world. I came to save your world. I know your name. I care for you like a shepherd. And again, it's not magic. It's not just that somehow everything works out the way we want it to work out and nothing goes wrong anymore. It's that as we follow him, he shapes our thoughts, our perspectives, our decisions. He shapes our affections, what we care about. And as a result, we transform. Our lives change. Jesus didn't just come to punch our ticket to heaven. And in fact, for some of you, it could be maybe the reason you left church for a while because the people there, they would talk about how they were saved and going to heaven, but they didn't treat people well. Or they didn't treat you well. It was all about church and faith and believing all the right things. It was all about fire insurance. It was like my right beliefs and my right religion is going to keep me from going to hell and I get to go to heaven when I die, but that's about where it ended. And Jesus would say, are you kidding me? That's not what I've described. No, I want to walk with you. I came to lead you in the same way a shepherd would sheep. It's, It's personal. And throughout Scripture, he calls, God calls us his children. He calls us his sons. He calls us his daughters. It doesn't get any more personal than that. So Jesus is saying for us to experience the personal nature of this relationship. He's inviting us. He's saying we need to get a little more sheepish. Now I tried to think of some sheep shepherd humor, but all the jokes were just bad. (laughs) Dad humor alert. 
The word sheepish, like it has a negative connotation, a negative, fearful, shy thing. But if you look it up, it's just resembling a sheep. And I think Jesus, Jesus would say, yeah, do that. Do that. Just resemble a sheep in relationship in your relationship with me. Resemble that kind of trust. Resemble that just where you naturally, you hear my voice and you instinctively trust it. Follow my voice. Follow my lead. I mean, just think about these little ones. Like some of you, if you were to go back like to the nursery or the, the preschoolers and, and go to just like one of the kids, like, hey, come here. Like they're going to go the opposite direction. Why? Because they don't know you. Like they don't recognize you, your voice, your scary looking. I don't know. But mom or dad comes in latching on. Resemble a sheep. Follow me. It's like, let me, follow me and let me get you in from time to time to protect you. It's not going to feel like protection in that moment. It's going to feel like I'm keeping you from something, but I am protecting you. And it's not rigid, like just get in a straight line and follow me, follow the leader. No, Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me in an intimate way. Follow me in a relational way. In a way where you are known and you know me. He says he calls his own sheep by name. It's not just, hey, you sheep over there. Like, come, no. It's, it's Zan. It's Ashley. It's Chris. It's Graham. It's Desiree. It's Will, it's Brandon, it's Sean, it's Dean, it's Chad. He says, I know your name. And you don't have to blaze the trail. Jesus goes ahead of you to lead you. And his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. And again, in in recent weeks, we've talked about this, about staying close consistently to him daily. Because if we do, here's the genius of it, we'll become more familiar with his voice. Because we're spending time with him. When he's speaking to us, that's what's available to you and available to me. That's what is offered a personal relationship with the Savior of the world. But it begs the question, Okay, how? How do we follow him? How do we stay connected and close to him? And I mean, where is Jesus? Okay, let's say, I I believe he was resurrected from the grave, but he is not walking around the earth today. Like he's not going to be down at Barnes and Noble signing books this afternoon where we can go and just be with him and follow him. How do I follow and get close to an invisible shepherd? And that's a great question. It's the right question. So just to help you, I, just, I want to offer just two resources. And feel free if you're in the room, take a picture or you can screenshot it. Uh, the first one is one of the best resources that I've ever come across in my life. Uh, if I were as young as some of you, I'd say it's old because it's been around, it was written 34 years ago. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. It's a Christian, uh, Christian classic. I've read it more than once. Uh, it was written 34 years ago by a name, Richard, uh, guy by the name of Richard Foster. He was a good friend and ministry partner to Dallas Willard, another just awesome thinker. Like his books, like I'd read two pages and like, okay, I got to set it down and ruminate on that because there was just so much. But this is a fantastic resource. And in this book, he outlines 12 disciplines or 12 practices that will help us follow and draw closer to Jesus and ultimately to God. Now, you may hear the word discipline and think, well, 
I don't really like that word. I don't like that word because it doesn't sound like any fun, discipline. I'm not really a disciplined person, but the truth is we're all disciplined, right? We're just disciplined in the things that we care about, that are personal to us. And we let our discipline slide in the things that we don't care about as much or aren't as personal to us. So I highly recommend this book because Foster spells out 12 different disciplines or practices that if you engage them in your life, and just pick one and start, it will lead you towards spiritual growth. It will help make it personal. And I'm telling you, these practices are the way that spiritual growth is found, to become more and more connected with your faith and with Jesus, to do your part in becoming increasingly familiar with his voice. Because let's face it, every day you are surrounded by so many voices, so many voices that are trying to tell you what gives you value, what doesn't, who you are, what makes you attractive or unattractive, and that you would become familiar with His voice. And so I just want to give you a few today to help make it personal. The first is uh, the discipline of study. And yes, this is the reading of Scripture, especially the New Testament, especially the Gospels. But it's not just limited to scriptures. It's reading other trusted resources written from a Christian perspective on, on how to follow, how to follow and obey Jesus, and how to see you as God sees you in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your dating, in your work, in your finances. So you find something to study. Uh, the next one is prayer. And for some of us, maybe many of us, we see that word, honestly, the word prayer is a little stale. Because maybe many of us, we feel like, you know, I kind of, I've tried and I feel like I pretty much failed the whole prayer thing. Like whatever, I wasn't doing it right. I prayed and prayed and prayed. Nothing happened. Or we think it's too formal. And if you think any of that, I just want to definitely encourage you to come back in two weeks because we're going to talk very specifically about how to make prayer personal in a way that you will see a difference. You will see results. Serving is another one. When you say, God, here's what I have, it, it's like, it doesn't seem like much at all. But God, if you'll take this and use this in some way, then I want you to take this and use this in some life. And God takes what you offer him to impact someone else. Even though what he does in their life may not be personal to you, it's personal to them. And it helps you grow. It makes your faith grow in those moments when you step up and serve. Guidance is another one that he talks about. Guidance is simply finding some people to get into your life, to speak into your life. This is why we're so pumped about the two men's groups that started since the beginning of the year or the women's group that just that started since the beginning of the year. And we love seeing all the men and women that have jumped towards that opportunity. Uh, it's why we love other small groups where we have a mix, mix of men and women and married single people. Uh, and we encourage people to be in group because all of us need to be in authentic community with people who are doing life alongside of us. Because you should be surrounded by people who are in proximity to you which positions them to have the opportunity to encourage you and to speak into your life. And then the last one that I'm going to mention, but again, there's 12. I just wanted to give a few, and that is celebration. This is intentionally looking for ways to be thankful in your life and expressing that. It's beginning to look daily for things that God is doing in your life. Like, like, I'm, not, like I'm not judging you or hating on you. Like I'm more of a tigger in the psychology of pool, poo. Uh, but some of you, you're a little more Eeyore. All right, I'm not judging you. And it's sometimes harder to see the good stuff. So it's applying this discipline where you begin to work to pay more attention of the ways that God has positively impacted your life in a given day. Like, God, thank you that I turned on that switch and lights came on. 
or I opened up the faucet and fresh water came out. I opened up this box, lights came on, there's food I can eat. Thank you for that. God, I get to take myself to the bathroom. I don't need assistance. It's, I'm just saying, there's so many things that use you apply this discipline. Now, to be clear, this is not about earning God's love or approval. You've already got it. This is, the disciplines don't earn God's grace. The disciplines simply position us before God so that we can experience His grace so that He can transform us and so that it can get personal for us. You know, a great example of this we often use, and it's used in the New Testament, is marriage. You know, uh, if basically in a marriage you sign a certificate, now you are legally married. But if you never talk, if you never interact, if you never date, if you never proactively face your problems and difficulties as a team, it's not going to be much of a relationship. And eventually, because we don't make it personal, it perishes. Instead, you dialogue daily, you date when you can, you show constant consideration of the other person, and you intentionally invest in the relationship with them, and that's what makes it personal. You do your part to make a life together, and that's what builds a relationship. That's what the disciplines do for us. That's what makes it personal for us. That's what it does for your relationship with Jesus. The second tool I want to offer you is this, and and just talk for one minute on this, just to help you discover what's called your spiritual pathways. I first read a book by this title a few years ago, uh, several years ago actually. It was so helpful to me because honestly, I felt so inferior to so many of the Christians around me because it just seemed, they seemed so spiritual and disciplined in ways that I just wasn't. But what I discovered was something that should have been obvious, that God doesn't create us in cookie-cutter fashion. Each one of us is unique, and as a result, different kinds of experiences make us individually feel closer to God. So spiritual pathways are the ways we most naturally connect to God. There are seven core pathways. Some um, authors would suggest nine, but all agree at a version of these seven, and most people gravitate to one primary and one secondary, and there are these uh, relationships, service, naturalist, worship, activism, contemplation, and intellect. So, for example, uh, naturalist or nature is my primary pathway. Now, naturalist, not as in nude beach, okay? Uh, I won't even wear a Speedo. Nobody wants to see an old guy in a Speedo. Uh, no, it's knowing God through the outdoors. Like, like, you get me outdoors, especially with mountains and trees, like when we were in Alaska, or hiking I've done in Missouri. It's like, I feel close to God. Uh, the other is activism. And this is knowing and connecting to God through uh, bringing about spiritual and social change. And by recognizing my spiritual pathways, that means that I can be more intentional about engaging those pathways more frequently, which goes so far in making it personal because I realize I don't have to be like everybody else. And for some of you, it's worship. Okay, you'd like it if we flipped it and did like 15 minutes of sermon and like 35, 40 minutes of music or music and prayer because you feel most connected through worship. Or some of you, music just doesn't engage you. But if you were to dig, had the chance to dig into the Word or doctrinal studies or whatever and just immerse yourself in study, for some of you, if it's just you and God can be alone, nobody else. Just complete solitude. That's yours. Or for some of, it's just different for each of us. And the great thing is we all have our own tribes. 
people who share the same pathways. And it's awesome when we connect with other people who have a similar pathway or share a pathway. It also helps us to never, ever look down on other Jesus followers because they don't share the same God-given passion for our pathway. Because it's not their God-given pathway. It's yours. It's one of the things, like, for example, like I, why I, I work to never shame people that come in like the first, second, or third song or after they're all done. Because the way I just, I just give them the benefit of the doubt. Worship is not their spiritual pathway. So that's why I go the angle like, hey, get here before the first song because we're going to have first-time guests and we don't want them to be like five people in the room and feel awkward. I'm like, oh, I can get on board with that. But the ironic thing is then they have a season or a moment where suddenly a song grabs them. It's not a bait and switch. It just happens. So here's what I want you to do to help you with this. Is, uh, again, I recommend take a picture of the screen if you want, but you can go to this link that's going to magically pop. Ooh, we have a scan me. That's awesome. Uh, and you can take the spiritual pathway assessment. Uh, this is through one of our partner churches. It's Woodstock City Church in Woodstock, Georgia. It's just a quick, free, simple, accurate assessment to discover your top spiritual pathways and to connect. And the cool thing is if you do this, connected to the assessment, there's a message you can watch online that will help flesh out what it looks like to engage your spiritual pathways. And I'm telling you, this is how you begin to make it personal. This is how you begin to make your faith come alive. In fact, I believe in this so much that if you're connected to New Life, we have your contact information. While I was talking, you received an email and or a text message with the links to these spiritual disciplines, the spiritual discipline books and the Pathways website. And if you took a picture, that's going to help you not forget it. And it's just to make it as easy as possible for you. And if you didn't get it, you'd like to make sure you do get stuff like this in the future. Before you log off, before you leave, make sure you get us your contact information so you don't miss out on things like this and this, what we've talked about. This is how you keep your faith from withering and perishing because it's boring and because it's disconnected from your day-to-day -day life. Or for some of you, it's what will revive something that has been withering. And here's what I've seen again in so many people's lives. I don't know any Jesus followers who just woke up one morning and believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. For all of them, it was a process. It began by pursuing, by following. They didn't believe and then follow. They began to follow and then believe. And this is true of all of Jesus' first disciples. So if you're listening today, you think like, what kind of Kool-Aid are these people drinking? Listen, you don't have to bite off more than you can chew. You don't have to buy into this whole thing today. You can just start following. You can just start by taking small steps. Maybe it's just by coming back next week. I mean, there's going to be barbecue. How hard is that? Maybe that's the next step for you. Maybe you've been here for a while. Maybe you've been following Jesus for decades. What is it for you? Maybe it's to pick up Richard Foster's book and begin getting up a little earlier in the morning and beginning to read and to start your day by following and pursuing. Maybe it will result in a new spiritual discipline in your life that becomes a spiritual habit that you begin to look forward to because it's become so integrated into your life. And it's making you better at life and making your life better and causing you to sense God's work and giving you more of an awareness of his work in your life. Maybe it's getting online this evening and taking this quick spiritual pathway assessment to discover the pathway that causes you to feel closer to God and then to get out your calendar and to get something locked in on your calendar where you intentionally begin leaning into one of your top spiritual pathways that your Heavenly Father hardwired you with so that you could better know him 
and he would know you. What step can you take to make it personal? This week you need to do that for your sake and for the people around you in your life that you care about because it changes everything. When you get sheepish, you start following, it gets personal. When it gets personal, it gets abundant. And Jesus wants you to have life at the full. May you pray for us. Father, it is easy to say and hard to do to filter out all the voices around us, especially when we're just on and connected nearly every waking hour. All these voices that quite honestly are just working to divide us, to tear us apart, to question what we see in the mirror. And so I pray for every one of us, everyone listening to my voice, God, that you truly, as we begin to take these steps, whether it's through the disciplines, the pathways, or both, that God, that you would, in response, truly help us begin to filter out those competing voices getting increasingly clear on yours so that it might impact our lives and the lives of everyone around us, Father. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.